0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in northwest Ohio and southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This is our third week in a series in which we are focusing on the church, the church of Christ, what the church is, and what the church is called to be. And last week, It was my desire to underscore the truth that more than anything else, the church is described as being a family. The church is the family of God. In just as real a way as you and I were born into homes with parents and with siblings and with certain likes and dislikes and talents and abilities and weaknesses and and sins uh, that, that your parents had and are passed on to you, the church is the same way, when you were called by God out of a life of sin, a life of darkness into the life of His holiness, you were born again, and you've been called into His family, and that family's the church. But because of sin, it's not just enough to say you've been born again and you've been called into this family. You have to describe what the nature of that family is because sin has corrupted all things. So it's not enough to just say, yeah, you're a part of the family of God. We've got to do some work now in describing what the family of God is, what's her character. And so we're going to do that over the rest of this summer. Our passage this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. If you have a Bible, please turn there, and let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. First Corinthians twelve twelve through twenty seven. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not many is not one member, rather, but many. If the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if an ear says, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of a body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each of them in the body, just as he desired. They were all member, one member rather, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into your body. Thank you for giving us your word and the way that it changes our lives. And now we pray that my words and our hearts and minds together would be focused on you and that we would be pleasing to you. May our church be a family that honors you and faithfully represents you to the world that is around us, a world that is dying for something, and they don't know what it is, but we know what it is. You've told us. And so, Father, we thank you for the joy of looking at this precious gift, your word, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last few decades of my life, which hasn't been that many, I don't have that many decades in my life. But over the last couple of them, uh, there's been something that I care almost very, very little about. It has a, a proper place, I suppose, but um, I've noticed something grow in popularity, and it seems like it's diversifying and spreading, and there's different, uh, different manifestations of it, with each with their own twist. Um, and that is something that you've all likely heard of before, and maybe something that many of you have taken, maybe as part of an employment, or maybe back in college, one of your professors had you take one of these. And it's called a personality test. Personality test. I know that there are some here who, who have used them with good success in the workplace. And they rep their own. They've got their particular one that they like a lot. But, you know, the, first, the thing about personality tests is they were developed and really used for the very first time ever in the mid-19-teens during World War I. And it was the U.S. military that invested in really bringing those tests about and utilizing them because they were trying to determine which type of soldiers would most react adversely to shell shock. That's why the personality tests really, that that was their nucleus. That's where they got started. And after that, near 1920, there was a lady, and I don't remember her name. It was whatever ended up being the, the Briggs and... Meyer, Meyer Briggs? Yeah, myers Briggs. I can't remember what it is, but the one that I've heard you talk about before. Uh, <laughs> and she developed that test because her daughter seemed to be attracted to a boy that she couldn't figure out why on earth she'd be attracted to him. And so, so that woman ended up really developing the myers Briggs, or whatever it's called, personality test as, as we know it today. That was a very long time ago. I'm sure it's changed quite a bit over the course of that time but they really started you know, over, just over 100 years ago now. Today, these tests in all of their various forms uh, represent a $500 million industry with an annual growth rate of around in between 10 and 15%. Millions of people take these for their jobs each year, um, and even though I believe some people have an unhealthy fascination with them and put too much dependency on them, um, they do point to a wonderful truth of God, which is God has created this world with all these fantastic differences throughout people and throughout things. Um, But these tests do point to that and affirm the the truth of that. This morning, I'm looking out at you and I see all sorts of different faces. We've talked about this already. uh, There are men here, women, children, grandchildren, grandparents here. There are all sorts of different types of personalities. There are introverts and extroverts there are creative thinkers, there are pragmatists, there are rationalists, there are realists, there are those that are risk-averse, there are those that are thrill-seekers. I just went to Cedar Point, and so that, that I've got some boys that are thrill-seekers, um, at least at this point in their life. There are those of you that are uh, thrifty, there are those of you that are extravagant, Uh, There are simple-minded, there are intellectual types, there are challengers, there are peacemakers, there are investigators, there are helpers, there are people who want to reform things. Uh, There are all sorts of different types of people in the way that we're made up. And as I look out, and if you were to look around and think about the people that are even just seated in the six-foot circle around your chair, you would see people that you know or maybe people that you don't know, and if it's people that you know, you'd use all this data to start understand the differences between you and them, and if you don't know them, then we have to go with what we see at face value. But there's all these differences in this family. Today I want to talk with you about the variation of the church, the variety of people, the very wide variety of people found in this church family and in every church family. And I want to speak about how we are to, being very different people, maintain unity, maintain unity despite our differences. How do we maintain the unity that Jesus prayed that we would have? How do we maintain the unity that the Scripture commands and that this this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 is speaking to while being very, very different people? Today, I want to challenge you to love your body, the church. The Apostle Paul teaches us about the nature of the church when he says that we collectively are the body of Christ. That's what this passage is focusing on. That's what he, fo- he, he talks about in Romans. It's an interesting thing that he says to us in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, just look back there for a minute. It says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So also is Christ. It's an interesting thing to say. The obvious context of this passage is the church. He's, we didn't read it, but if you look at verse 1 down to, through 11, um, he's talking about the gifts that are given to the church in the context of the church. And so it would make sense that when he got to verse 12, he would end by saying... Though there are many, are one body, so also is the church. But he doesn't do that. Of course, this is what Paul is saying. It's not the wording that he uses. We're going to come back a little later this morning and think more about why he says, so also is the church, or is Christ rather than instead of the church. But for right now, I want us to lock onto the fact that God has intentionally and specifically brought many different types of people into the makeup of the body of christ if we think about it though this isn't surprising this is what god's been doing for a very long time when he made the world he made it with different things different plants different animals different trees different stars moons constellations star structures each with their function even though some of those functions wouldn't be known for hundreds or thousands of years, even though some of those functions and those differences, like why does this animal differ from this one, we don't have any idea. Some of those things we don't even understand today, and yet God did it back then for his purpose. And so at the very end of the creation order, we're told that he made the, the jewel of creation, which was man in his image. And yet even with man created in the image of God, he also found a helper suitable and brought him to man. He created woman, and they are different. Men and women are different, and it's a beautiful thing. God's words were that it was very good. He's made a world that is filled with all sorts of variations and differences, and these differences do two things. I want us to, to sort of lock in on these things this morning. The differences in us and in the world around us, glorify God, and they are a blessing to us. They glorify God, and they are a real blessing to us. God looked out, and He saw all that He had made, and He declared, it is good. And from the moment of creation, God has been creating and binding radically different things, plants and animals and colors and whatever else, together for His glory and for our good." And this is a truth that we recognize, even if we haven't thought about it before. Once we notice it, you may recognize it a lot more throughout life. I want to just point out a few things to get our minds thinking about this reality. Michelangelo's painting, the Sistine Chapel, I didn't bring it here this morning, but I do want to say that in a world without variety and color, his Sistine Chapel, I think that is one of the primary color tones in the Sistine Chapel. So without difference, his paintings look about like that projection screen without anything on it. Dull, bare, but with a variety of colors, with a variety of shapes, with a variety of hues, you have beauty. And this is what people have been doing for a long time, painting pictures of scenes that God has created. It's, it's all over. You know, I was just uh, traveling a little bit, and one of the most incredible things about Montenegro, if I've told you at anything about our trip, what I've said is the most striking thing about the trip was, as we traveled, one of the reasons I loved uh, um, Montenegro so much is that the country was so diverse. The country was incredibly diverse. It, you can drive from one side of it on the Adriatic Sea all the way to the other side of it in about four hours. And in the span of those four hours, you just see so much. You, see, you have the ocean on one side, and you have, um, you have, you have Hollywood Hills sort of uh, in my, to my mind, they weren't the most pretty thing, but they're, they're, they're smaller and they're rolling and they have shrubs and little bits of growth on them. And then you get deeper into the country and you see rock. You have just mountains and mountain ranges of rock with all these angled lines through the rock at, coming out at, protruding at different angles. Um, and then you go further and you have a huge gorge. The second deepest gorge in the entire world um, is there. And you have alpine mountains, and you have all this stuff, blue water. You have all this stuff that in America here, we drive for five hours, and we get to Kentucky. And there you drive five hours, and you go through all this incredible variety, and it's lovely. We have it here, too. It's just a little bit more spread out. I loved all the variation. It's a, it's, it's a recognized... The other thing I was going to say is there... The people there recognize it. I don't think many are Christians, but they all say God has given us this country and it's like one of the pride of their lives that they are able to live in this country. They recognize it. They recognize that it's a blessing to live in a country that declares the glory of God through the diversity and that God has shared that with us. As as I was walking earlier this week, before I went up to the camping trip, I walked around two neighborhoods in Waterville, the one I enjoy walking around, the other I don't. What's the difference? One is an older neighborhood, and it has trees and shrubs, and it has tiny little houses and bigger houses, and all this variety. the other neighborhood is brand new, and all the houses are quite a bit more expensive, but you have basically a variation on two different homes. You've got the, the one bigger home and you've got the smaller home, and then they change color a little bit, but that's, that's all there is. I really enjoy walking around the other one, the neighborhood. With more variety, there's more to take in. Uh, th- we see it in, in gardens. A garden bursting with variety of arrays of flowers that bloom in staggered fashion throughout the year is even more beautiful than a garden just with one single flower, just even though that is beautiful in itself. A meal made up of different dishes, appetizers and entrees and desserts and drinks is better than a large plate of steamed vegetables, or even really a large plate of meat with nothing else. Um, music. music that's performed by a symphony takes on a majesty that a lone acoustic guitar is hard-pressed to compete with. Maybe you're into interior design, and I'm not. But uh, they combine hues and the textures and accents in a room to create a unified feel. If I was the one doing it, I would buy a whole bunch of the most thick leathered furniture I could afford and stuff it in there. It would all be leather, but it wouldn't feel unified. It wouldn't be a nice room. It would just be a, a man room. So these things are all around us, this, this difference that, has, that is used by God and brought together to create beauty and to glorify him and to be a blessing to us. God has made a world filled with all sorts of variations and differences so that he might be glorified and to bless us. And we experience this all around us. Creation declares the glory of God. <clears throat> Yet this reality that we are many and different is paired in our passage with another reality, that we are one. Our passage this morning is talking about the fact that we all, many members, are a part of, and we're different members, we serve different functions, are a part of one body. This isn't merely late-night kumbaya, you know, you start saying we're one, we're one, and you can have some sentimental notions come to your mind. This, this is not that. This is not some feeling that comes and goes. It's not ephemeral, it's, it's hard, it is a hard and fast reality, and we're living in it. Verse 13 says this, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the same spirit. When we come to faith, we are joined into the body of the church, and this unity, this oneness, runs deeper than blood, because it's not only a physical unity, it's also a spiritual unity. It doesn't just join us into an earthly family alone, but it's an eternal family. And this is an eternal reality, but it doesn't start in eternity. It begins now. This oneness that verse 13 speaks of is not the oneness that you might feel if you're a part of a country club or if you're a part of a soccer team that really does well and has a successful season. You know the feeling that when you compete together with guys uh, or gals and you do well, there's this, there's this unity and this yeah factor, right? There's that in the church that's certainly true, but it goes way beyond that. Why? Because by one spirit, we were baptized. We were baptized. This oneness is not just something that we feel. It's not just something that we do, although we act it out, and that will be our focus in a few minutes. But this oneness is something that is done to us. When we come to faith, and when we're joined to the bride of Christ, when we come into the family that is the church, we've been baptized into one body. By one spirit. And this is a bond that isn't out there anywhere else. It's not in the clubs. It's not in your sports team. It's unique to the church. This is something the Holy Spirit does in us. This oneness is a glory. Many of us have just gotten back <clears throat> from a camping trip. It's been alluded to a few times already. There were lots of us up there. And one of the cool things, this is, the camping trip is a highlight for me. One of the cool things about this camping trip that we've been doing for well over a decade now is that over the years, many have taken vacation time and gone on this trip even if they don't love doing it. There are many who have even done day trips up to the camping trip and spent time with the church, even though sitting out in the hot sun or, you know, or, or getting rained on under a tent, <laughs> whatever it may be that year, isn't their cup of tea. It's not really what they would do if they had a free day to enjoy it in any way they pleased. Why do they do it? Well, it's because they, they know the oneness of the body. They have a desire to live out the oneness that we've been brought into that is stronger than the desire to serve ourselves or do whatever we want. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. You know, um, it's a joy two years in a row now we've gotten feedback uh, two t- two trips ex- conclusive. we didn't go there last year but this year and two years ago last time we went we've been able to talk with the camp after we've packed up and most of us have left and it's a beautiful thing that the camp says you know I don't know what it is about your group but we can tell you love the Lord you, there's something about this group we haven't ever seen with any other group and that's not for us to pat ourselves on on the shoulder about. That's to give glory to God that God has worked in us and has bound us together by His Spirit so that we are one. That's a beautiful thing. And And I love you for it. What a testimony. What a witness. Our oneness is showing. In thinking specifically about the church, think about the men that Jesus chose to be next to His side. His 12... The disciples, you, you have all sorts. You've got fishermen, you have, you have tax collectors, you have zealots. And I don't know if you know about those sorts of people, but they didn't get along well with each other. The zealot was, 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 was very religious and would despise the tax collectors because the tax collectors were thieves. They'd steal from those that sought their help. And the tax collectors would look down on the poor fishermen because they are poor. They despised fishermen. You start thinking about the 12 men that Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. They were very different. And that's, that's the foundation of the church right there. My dad preached on that three or four weeks ago with Jesus talking to Peter. That's the very beginning of, of the church as, as we know it now. And these men were radically different from each other. Consider the strategic rationale behind Jesus telling his disciples to start the church and then Paul and Peter and many others going out and saying, we're going to have not two churches but one church. Where was the strategy behind having one church with both Jews and Gentiles. How was that strategic in any way? The Jews despised Gentiles. You think about their treatment of Samaritans, and they were even had some commonality with them in the past. The Jews and Gentiles, Jesus said, were to be brought into one church. He didn't try and keep them separated, He said, it's going to be one church. This is oneness despite a huge amount of difference, oneness. Jesus wants his family to be united, and it's to be united with all sorts of types of people, types of people that would typically maybe even despise each other. This is actually a comment. I was thinking about this earlier. This is something I've said to, I remember saying it to AJ. I've said it to many others. One of the coolest things is that in the church, God brings together people that would typically hate each other. You ever think about that? You think about the friends that you love here, uh, whether they're very much like you, and (laughs) outside the church you might hate them for another reason, (laughs) because you're competing with them, or whether they're very different than you, and and outside the church you might be tempted to dislike them because of the difference. In the church, it's one of the coolest things, that God has bound so many different types of people together, and not just said, you're all riding in the car together and you're going to like it, Hands on the ceiling. But he's brought us together as a family and he's given us work to do in positions and places. And and we love each other. It is just the most wonderful thing. It's the most wonderful thing. The body is many different people with many different gifts. And that's a glorious thing. The body is one. And that's a glorious thing. Notice, listen, notice where Paul goes. He's just said that the body, we've been baptized with the Spirit. We've been made one. He doesn't end by saying, Isn't it so nice? We're all one now. Be blessed. He doesn't say that. If you look at the passage, he's just said that we're one. And then look what he says right after that. He lays into the fact that the family of God is many members and then immediately shifts gears and begins anticipating the problems that will inevitably rise when you have a body that is made up of many members. Despite having just told them that they are one. There are two temptations that I want to focus on today that we will be prone to as it relates to our differences as a church family. And these temptations are not new. The things I'm saying aren't unique to me. These are the things that Paul addresses in our passage. Verses 14 through 26. The first temptation is that we will be prone to being dissatisfied with the position that we've been given. To be resentful or to be jealous of those that have different abilities or functions than you have. That's the first thing he says, verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. So the foot is saying, oh, I'm down here. Look at that thing up there. I want to be that thing. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is for not... It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine a foot going on strike because it isn't as significant in its own opinion as the hand? Listen, I, I've got a guitar right over there, and this hand can play, I like to think it could play, up and down the neck of that guitar. But without feet, I can't have the guitar. I can't get to it. I can't touch it. Right? It's this way with every part of the body. Mm, it'd be great to be the eyes. That sets the direction. Look at the head. It's turning. It's going. It, you know, you're around people. The toes can't even see above the people's heads. It'd be nice to be the eyes. But you know what? You can't get to where you what you see if you don't have the feet. This is this is the this is the point Paul is making. Can you imagine having to pick which of the sent? which of the senses you were going to get rid of. We Probably we, we, probably, the things we'd choose wouldn't all be the same. It'd be a horrific process. Who wants to lose any of the senses? None of us. None of us. Can you imagine losing your sense of taste? Uh, well, actually, come to think of it, <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> it was horrible. Aaron, lol, hey, can you taste anything yet? <laughs> yeah, iffy. Yeah, it's bad. None of us want to do away with any of our senses. Can you imagine not being able to... The ear wants to be something else. Can you imagine not hearing the, the roar of the ocean or your, your baby cooing and cawing in your lap or the birds chirping or the crackle of the fire? Can you imagine any of our senses being dulled or t- and taken away without immense pain and loss? Absolutely not. It's crazy. Yet, yet, we act in this way. The thought that the, the foot had about the hand, the thought that the ear hand had about the eye, we have had. We may not verbalize it in the same way. We may state it in a way that we think is more sophisticated or less sort of complainy, but Paul knew that the church of Corinth wasn't above this sort of thing, and we know that we aren't above this sort of thing either. In fact, this issue is one of the motivations that he wrote the letter of Corinthians in the first place. If we were to turn back and look at the very beginning in chapter 1, I just want to read a a verse from there. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and that there be no divisions among you. And then he says later on, for I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So right out of the gate in chapter 1, Paul is saying, listen, this, 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 topic of unity and being one and living at peace with each other and valuing each other and knowing what God has called you to and what he's called other people to, these are the things that are on his mind as he's starting to frame in this letter. And what sorts of quarrels might Chloe have reported? Significant ones, no doubt. No. That's not the sort of thing they, that they've been quarreling over. Nothing of significance. He says, this is the whole I follow Paul, I follow Paulish things. This is much more like a, 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 a your children trying to one-up the other or have a superiority complex. Paul is taking now in chapter 12 another whack at this sort of disunity because he knows how prevalent it can be. He knows how prone we can be to comparing ourselves to other people and allowing our minds to run an endless tape about how much better things would be if we could just be like them or if we were given that sort of responsibility. I just wish there was a place for me to serve. This is the kind of thing we say, but often what we mean is, I wish that there was some responsibility that I considered worthy, like they have. That's the, that's the kind of way we dress it up. I'm not being promoted as much as I think I should, or maybe the leadership just hasn't gotten to know me yet. I don't understand why I don't get asked to teach more often. I think I've got more discernment than that other person. As I was thinking about maybe some of the things that come to our mind, sometimes we don't really outright complain about a lack of opportunities. I think sometimes those feelings come out by us slyly sort of complaining about others and the, the work that they're doing. So it's not always as, it's not always, please put me on projection. Why aren't you using me on projection? I won't be anything until I'm put on projection. I've never heard that. But it's not that obtuse. It's not that obvious. It's, it's, it's more sly. But we do it. I wish I'd been asked to help with youth group in Natawana. I really feel like I'm better with those sorts of kids. Or sometimes as parents we can start taking on this type of thinking on behalf of our children. Comments about them. It's not always about ourselves. It can be comments about, about others under our care. Notice also That the foot and the ear say this, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Now, this can be read in two different ways. One of those ways is to see the foot or the ear um, saying that since they aren't something else, they don't feel included. Well, since I'm not the the hand, I'm, I'm not even a part of the body. The other way to read this, and Paul doesn't specify, is that since they aren't the hand or the eye, they are going to Um, take their ball and go home. They aren't going to be a part of the body, right? Do you see the difference in the statements? One is saying, well, I don't feel like I'm anything. I don't really feel included. The other is to say, well, since I'm not, I'm out. Both of these readings strike us in different places of our hearts. Both of these speak to situations that we can encounter in the church and the ways we can think. Beware of odious, foolish comparisons. Don't make them Don't give in to jealousy or resentment toward other people. Certainly, don't amputate yourself off from the body. That's sort of the second way of thinking. Well, since I'm not like that, I guess I just don't have a place. I guess they don't need me. Paul is warning that when we're jealous or resentful, we are prone to distancing ourselves. But the family should not act in this way. A healthy family does not act in this way. By, doing, by removing yourself or by putting up walls, it always makes things worse. Because what you do is, is you place yourself in a silo where you control all the voices and all the things that you hear and you start affirming the initial thought that you had in the first place until you make it your reality. And it's not true. The second temptation, the first temptation was To not be dissatisfied with the position you've been given. The first temptation, rather, is is to be dissatisfied of the of where you're at, and to be resentful or jealous of the other person. And we see that in 15 and 16. The second temptation is very much like the first, very much like the first. But instead of resentment looking upward, like the foot to the hand, it's resentment looking down your nose at others who seem to be weaker. That's the language that Paul uses. Those that seem to be weaker. Verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And the members of the body which we deem less honorable, notice Paul doesn't say that God views them as less or that they are less, but that they are, seem to be less honorable. On these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to the member which lacks so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. Don't look down on those that seem weaker or those who are weaker. Paul says seems, but we all understand that in other places there's those that eat meat, there's those that are newborn babes. We understand this concept. Don't look down on other people that are different than you, that think differently than you, that have had different backgrounds and pasts that can't do certain things that you do. Paul is saying, just like you pay special attention to your hair on a bad hair day, and you know what I mean by that, or just like you might work on presenting yourself on a day when you look rough. This is the way we are to behave toward those that seem weaker. He says, just like you give special attention to your body, the parts that are weaker. Treat people in the church that same way. That's, that's essentially what Paul is saying. So in essence, you aren't to be dismissive or condescending, but we can't stop there. We actually, it's not just enough to not be dismissive or condescending of others that may appear weaker. That's not enough. Paul goes on to say that we are to bestow more abundant honor on them. We are to help them. We are to seek to build them up. We are to seek to strengthen them. We are to seek to have them over for dinner. We are to seek them out in the atrium and talk with them. This is what Paul's saying. It's not enough to just not do something wrong. Remember I said that last week. It's not enough to just root out something that might be bad. Don't be condescending. No, rather, encourage. That's what Paul's saying. Why would you want to do that? Because they are a part of your body, and you are a part of theirs. Now, in the last ten years, um, Aaliyah and I have lived in two different homes, and we flipped both those homes, um, and the most recent home, The process has been fairly significant, and we're getting to the tail end. But at the beginning of the process, uh, we did a lot of demolition of various kinds. And one of the projects that I did was to demo out an old patio. And how many um, of you are guys that like to buy your own tools? So everybody else likes to borrow tools. That's what I'm hearing? OK, well, I've got some tools for you to borrow. <laughs> Whenever I start, a project, it's fun to go and get one of the tools that I don't already have, so I want to show you. I had to demo this patio, and I've wanted one of these for a long time a 12-pound sledgehammer. Look at this baby. This thing can do some serious damage. This thing has an end made for busting concrete. It's got a cross right here in the middle. And it's supposed to break those slabs, like, cutting through butter, except that my slab was actually two 8-inch slabs poured on top of each other, and so it did not. But anyway, I got out there with this thing, and I started, I started going, going at it. And over the course of the day, um, I broke up a lot of that, a lot of that patio. But i got to tell you, um, I had my toolbox... Sitting in the grass right next to where I was working. This little guy was watching the whole day. Look at this guy. Same color, different size. This guy, if if he had if he was the feet, he would have run out of the yard. Because he was angry that he wasn't getting any action on that day. So I spent the whole entire day using this 12-pound hammer, and at the end of the day, I am beat. I am exhausted. I am hoping that Aaliyah is making hamburgers on the grill. And I go in and shower, and I get out, and it's the kind of sweating that, you know, you, start, you keep sweating after your shower. That's, that's the kind of day it was, all right? And my shoulder's tight. And I eat dinner. And after dinner, Aaliyah comes up to me, and she says, hey, can you hang this frame on the wall? Now, I don't know. If any of you guys have ever experienced trying to hit a tack nail with a 12 pound hammer, but it's not very easy, and it's not very forgiving on the drywall when you miss. I didn't use this one. I used this one right here. This is a a wimpy hammer, all right, I know that. But it, it has so little weight that it's great for pounding in one of those tack nails. Listen, if you're in the business of redoing houses, you are uh, silly if you don't own various types of hammers because you need different types of hammers for different types of jobs. They serve different functions. It's a silly little thing, but there is two of my hammers right there, and I got a couple of intermediate ones. They all serve a different function. And this is the way it is in the body of God. It's not that this little guy is worse than the 12-pound sledge, It's that it serves a different purpose. It was made differently. It doesn't weigh the same. It doesn't mean that it has no purpose. The big guy isn't better for being big. It's just made for busting up concrete. And if I was a hammer, I'd rather be the small one. We must always remember that each and every part of the body is needed. There's no appendix in the body. There's nothing that could be removed without any pain and without really any noticeable difference as we move forward with our life. There's no peace that can be uh, removed without pain and a lack of functioning as it should. Remember, we are all connected. If the foot wants to be the eye and so he removes himself, he's hurting the whole body, including the other foot. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is building his church. That's what we heard five, four weeks ago now. I will, on you, I will build my church. Jesus is building his church. And the church that he's building is a family. It's got all sorts of people, all sorts of strengths, all sorts of weaknesses. And he has called us into one body so that he might be glorified and so that we might be blessed. If we give in to the temptations that we've talked about, if we give in to being jealous and resentful because we're not something we wish we were, if we give in to the temptation of looking down our noses at other people that aren't what we think they should be, we are working against both these things. We're working against God being glorified, and we aren't going to be blessed. First, in a miraculous way, the church body is Christ in the world. Remember that verse, verse 12? I said we were going to talk about it later. Here's where we're talking about it. Verse 12 said, For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. In order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus took on flesh. In order to accomplish his work today, Jesus has a body that consists in the living members of his church family. When we are not at peace with each other, We represent Christ poorly to the world, the world that's watching and interacting with us. When we're we're doing poor evangelism, if this is the way that we're acting, but when we're living out our oneness, that's power, that's strength, and God is glorified. Second, uh, when we're focused on what we wish we were, or when we're focused on being frustrated with people that aren't like us, what are we doing we're cutting off from ourselves any ability to actually be fruitful. We're wasting our lives thinking about what could be, thinking about what shouldn't be, and we aren't doing anything for God. We aren't doing anything for our brother. We're not loving God. We're not loving our brother. Jesus' simple commandment, when we are passing our time, we're being resentful, we're being jealous, or being snide and proud. We are being, there is no room for fruitfulness there because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God has given us grace so that we might live as we ought, as he's called us to. As I think back on um, my high school days, I have one primary regret, two regrets. One was being so frightened at the way to every wrestling meet and making my coach mad at me. <laughs> but the real regret is that I was so disdainful, I think, of the people that were around me because I didn't, um, I didn't respect them and I, I had a negative view of them, the students, that I really cut myself off from any leadership at all. I, I went through my time there sort of like understanding that a lot of people weren't living the way they, they should have been And instead of actually being a voice of truth and of light, instead of seeking to sacrifice myself for other people, even if I didn't get along with them very well, I really just stayed to myself and felt good about myself and felt bad about them. That was wrong. I should have gone through the four years of my high school another way. And I I do regret that looking back today. So guys who are in school learn from me. Don't spend your life looking down on other people and not doing anything about it. You won't won't be fruitful. Live according to God's word and he will bless you. He, He will bless you. Just like I was building my house, God is building his house. And he's using us to do it. Each one of us has gifts and purposes and functions because he has made us that way. That's what verse 18 says. He's made us that way. And it would be stupid to only one, own one sort of hammer. In the same way, in the family of God, don't resent, don't be jealous of another, don't look down on a weaker member. If you're a muscle, don't live as a sore, achy muscle. If you're a toenail, don't be an ingrown toenail. Honor your body, love your body. It's God's gift. I love you. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not called us and left us, but uh, you have given yourself fully to us, and beyond that, you've given us each other. Pray that we would be a body that is one, that's one by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that this uh, unity and this power would be seen by a watching world, and that they would take notice and that they would glorify your name. Have your way with us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.